so the the uh, assignment anyway or the idea was to just become more familiar with chapters two and three the section uh, with the letters the seven letters to the seven churches maybe just better put just the part towards the seven churches because as we saw in chapter one of revelation the whole book is the letter to the seven churches and then the beginning of the letter is a direct message to each of the church so I think sometimes when we just label it as all oh, the seven letters to the churches we forget that the whole book is one letter to all the churches and then within the letter there is this beginning to each of the churches so uh, that might be helpful or maybe you, you might not find that part helpful but I'm trying to make that distinction because the very first chapter John already says John to the seven churches he's writing this whole letter and then he gives each of them a message and so one one thing to just uh, reflect on before we I want to see if we can talk about the message to each church real quick see if we remember anything if you had a chance to read but from the the idea from the first chapter this vision of Jesus where he's clothed with a robe and he's walking among the seven lampstands the idea there is not to tell us literally what Jesus looks like but to convey ideas or truths about him you know his eyes his hair his clothing his voice those aren't things that are, are meant for us to be like oh well every time he talks it's going to sound like a bunch of water like a waterfall that would be that would be unintelligible i don't oh that thing fell that would be unintelligible and so it's just the the magnificence the power of when he speaks those are, those are images so same thing with the lampstands the idea is not to convey that there is a lampstand in heaven and there's only seven lamps up there so only seven churches get represented the idea is more to represent the church as a whole some of these numbers take on symbolic meaning so the seven lampstands in the first chapter is meant to be more symbolic in nature Jesus is among all of the churches so they represent all seven churches weren't even all the churches of Asia Minor so these seven that are listed there were more churches. Just in Ephesus alone, there were more churches. Ephesus just happened to have one big hub. It was a bigger city. Uh, maybe one of the bigger churches of all seven. But just even in the town of Ephesus, there were other churches nearby. So there were many more churches that Paul could have written, uh, Paul, John could have written to. He just chose seven, and they represent the message he wants to give to all of the churches. So starting with maybe that mindset, the letters that we see... We can take them more as a whole. John's idea is to give the entire church a message. As he selects these seven, it's going to be something that all churches can look at, right? Any one of the messages we can we can apply to ourselves. We can take something out of it. And then as a whole, that's one thing I'd like to do today is try to get this thing, feel like we get the whole thing together. And um, I, I think that's a good way to start. And then you can apply the each one individually. So, um, I also mentioned that uh, each letter has this word overcome. We talked a little bit about that the previous time we were here two weeks ago, and how that relates to the rest of the book. We'll, get, we'll try to get to that bottom part of our, our screen there today. But first, if we can, without cheating, without using your Bible, if we could try to think through something distinct about each letter to the, to the churches, the seven churches that are mentioned here. I put the first one up with a heart, so you should already kind of guess what distinguishes this message from the other ones. If you could just, someone could think of it out loud, what, what might my little heart represent from what we looked at 
two weeks ago about the message to the church at Ephesus. The first love, right? That's what he writes there. And we talked a little bit what, what that could mean. That could mean the passion and zeal that you have, your, your personal relationship with God itself. It, it could also be a reference to particular things that they were doing early in their church life, the former things that they used to do. So we left that a little bit open-ended for, for now. The second one uh, is, I put 10 days, any, without looking, Carol, you, were, you had your head down. No looking, no cheating. Any, oh, you're looking at your notes. Uh, no, notes are okay, but no, no Bible for these first couple of minutes. Any, any guess as to what 10 days might mean for this second church? I'll give you a hint that I circled two and six because this helps me remember all seven is that two and six are the two churches that do not get judged for something. They are the two churches that are doing well. The other five are in a more difficult spot where God has to correct them pretty severely. But those two um, are not being corrected in any way. They're being congratulated, affirmed. And in this one, there's a mention of 10 days. Could, could you remember in anything what that might mean towards that particular church? Yeah, God says, uh, you're doing really well, and your reward is you're going to go into tribulation for about, for about 10 days. And in, in, any, so, any source of that tribulation? Is there anything? Is it just random tribulation? Is it, uh, you know, you're going to have sores on your body? You're going to... Well, yeah, may, may, maybe it does. That you are small, maybe, and poor, but you are rich. That, that sounds like it might be number six, but, but it, it might be one of those. Somebody is mentioned as kind of the cause behind the 10 days of tribulation that this church is facing. Well, there's also possibly some jail time there. Yeah, and, and who, who exactly is, is kind of behind that, in the, at least according to the letter? There's an important person who's, who's named... Satan. This is the first time he shows up in, in the whole book of Revelation. He shows up in the letter. It's just a matter of fact. Oh, yeah, and Satan might throw you into prison. That's pretty awful. But we'll just add Satan in here as a, an important title. So just, just notice that. The letters to the, all the churches start off with, first, uh, your first love, you need to get things right. You've abandoned doing certain things. Your, your commitment to me, there, there's lacking there. I'm not happy with that. And then to the other church, he says... You're doing great, and um, 10 days of hardship are coming for you. Whatever that might mean, if it's literally 10 days in prison, but Satan is behind that. So that church is living in an area where Satan is at work, and what God says is you're going to have to just endure. I'm not going to relieve you from this. I'm not gonna, you're not going to escape from it. That's part of why you're there, to be my lampstand. So you're, you're facing something. Let's go to the next uh, three, four, and five. Uh, what helps me with 2 and 6 is that 3, 4, and 5, they're, they're fairly similar. Definitely 3 and 4. They have a similar kind of theme. I want to see if there's uh, any guesses here without cheating. Are there any guesses as to what we can, what word would you use? And if not, that's okay. I'll, I'll try to fill, fill these in, but I just thought we could um, stretch ourselves a little bit. Plus, it was the holidays, you know, lots of stuff happening. It's not like you were studying for you. Usually this is like the break period and instead we did like the only real assignment so far for our time together was over Christmas break. So I, I pushed it a little bit. 
How about this? I'll. Um, the Church of Laodicea was lukewarm. But... Yep, and that would be the very last one. That's seven. Okay. Yeah. So you're you're in the ballpark. Is, it, is this the one that you mentioned that they're <clears throat> false, like yeah, they're and, and what's the other one? The, yeah. Well, the, there is a there's false teaching, but. Um, what in specific about the false teaching for, for this one? This, this is what distinguishes this letter from, from the following one. What, what about the false teaching were they, not so much what it was, because they're both the same, which is sexual morality and idolatry, but uh, what were they doing with the false teaching? They were just tolerating it. It wasn't so much that the church was teaching it, but there were some in the church, a few, that were doing that, and they were just kind of like, eh. We'll let that go on. So we'll, they tolerate it. Sounds kind and of this, present. It, it sounds kind of present. It sounds very uh, present. Sounds very, uh, very relevant. Now, in, in this, in this, uh, in this church, the next church, the next letter, I should, oh, the next message, yeah, the next church. There was also false teaching of the same kind. But what were they doing with the teaching in this one? They were practicing. Something. This one, yeah, this one was a little bit. They were holding to it. I think that's the word used there. So the difference between these two is one church, you just simply tolerate. And I don't like that at all. That you're just allowing it. You're actually witnessing. You're doing good deeds. You're committed to me. Like, he doesn't say they're an awful church. He just singles out this one area. You're allowing this, this teaching to go on among my people. And you're treating it as if it's, ah, you know what? We just have to deal with it. That's just the way that it is. Churches are weird. People are weird. So we'll just let it go. And Jesus says, no, no, I've judged her, the prophetess, and I've judged the teaching and all those holding to it. And you're going to go down with the ship if you allow it to permeate the group. That's kind of the idea there. And the other one is they're actually holding to it. You, you guys are teaching this in your midst. It needs to be corrected. So I, I like how Jesus distinguishes that, you know, for the churches. It just shows you how much he's aware of what's happening in, in church life. I think what we're meant to do as we take that as a whole, is realize how intimate Jesus is with his people, with his churches. Not just back in time, 2,000 years ago, not just for the seven churches, but as they represent the people of God as a whole. That's what Jesus is doing. He's in the midst of his people. He's walking with them. He's taking care of them. He's examining, right? He's cleaning the lampstands. He wants to make sure the lamp burns brightly. He's maintaining it. He's the priest. And as a priest, he has things that he points out to each church. And so that's, uh, that's pretty intense to think of Jesus that way, as the maintainer of our light, the source of it. Right? He's going to provide what the church needs to be, and he's going to correct the church when necessary. He's not just sitting up there like a big cheerleader. Go team! You know, what counts is your effort. And he is definitely cheering for us and sustaining us, but he's also willing and he needs to come down and correct when it's necessary. So those are some of the corrections so far. Um, you're, either your heart's not in it, you've, you've stopped doing what you used to do, and it's not okay that, you're, that you stopped doing that. Uh, also, he says to one church, you know, I know where you are with Satan. Satan is against you, and uh, I'm going to allow him to put you through a tribulation, through a trial. It's going to be limited. I think that's the idea with 10 days is it's not so much just count to 10 and then it's done. I think the idea is more or less it's limited. He doesn't have all authority and power. I've given him a limited amount of time. It will be over at some point. Uh, but that's just what I have deemed for you. That is your lot. And then the next two, he has this, the idea of teaching. 
that's being tolerated and it's being held to. What about the, the next one? Yeah. Well, the way that I remember this one is uh, I just put zombie here for this one because it says you look like you're alive but you're actually dead. And zombies are like this mixture of walking dead. They just, it just helps me think of dead and alive together. Not so much that the metaphor works perfectly, um, but they are these things that are walking around the church. And uh, Jesus says, I know what you're really like. Right? You have, maybe you have a, a fame and a reputation from the past, uh, previous generation, and then the next one comes up, and maybe it's just living off of the hype from the previous one, and you're not really what people think that you are, and you're comfortable, and you've accepted that, and you just take that, and you're fine with it. And Jesus says, no, I know what you really are, and I have found your works to be wanting. You are falling short of what I've assigned for you. So that's another fascinating way, right, when we... Again, think about the, the totality of these messages of Jesus among his church, taking care of the church, how he inspects the church, how he cares about the church, the types of things he's looking at and concerned about. And one of them is not doing certain things, right? So you've, you've abandoned certain things. And then the other one Jesus is, is saying to those zombies is, uh, you, you guys are fine pretending. You're, you have fallen way short of what I've assigned you to be as a church, to be a lampstand, to be a light. And it is unacceptable. It's not just that you've abandoned certain things. You're just, you're just fine living in the past. You're just, you're just now existing with the name of a church, of a lampstand. And no, this will not do. So that's that one. And then number six is Philadelphia. And what is a distinguishing characteristic of that church? As we get further along, it, this one I think is, um, I don't know, it's easy to kind of forget this one. Because if you're, if you're trying hard to memorize them and remember, it's easy to get the first few. And then as you get towards the second, the last one it's easy to remember, but then the second to last one gets... Huh? You said two and six, we're not getting correct. Yeah, they, Philadelphia is not a, not a bad church. It's a one that God is not upset with anything in particular. Yeah, they are supposed to keep going. And there's like a, there's a particular message that he gets, or promise, I should say, that he gives them if they keep enduring, keep being faithful. They're, they're, all of these churches have like Satan hovering around them. Satan is, he's part of the whole thing. But it says he lives in their town. Yeah, especially Pergamum, which is um, the second one, I believe. That's his throne, it says there. Like, you, you, you are really close to, his, uh, to the headquarters. But for, for um, Philadelphia, there's a, there's a unique phrase there. I'll just put the word kept or keep. Where he promises them, because you've been faithful to me, I'm going to keep you and protect you from something that's coming upon the whole, it says the whole world, Maybe their whole region, maybe that empire at the time. So God promises protection for them. So for <clears throat> Pergamum, God says, no, you're going to get 10 days of trial. You might even die. Be faithful unto death. And for Philadelphia, God says, I'm going to protect you. God doesn't say one is better than the other. God doesn't say Philadelphia is getting protection because they were more faithful than Pergamum. It's just difference. God has assigned each of the churches something different for them to experience a unique challenge. And it's not really for them to be comparing themselves to each other. It's just the way God has allotted it. It's just there. 
So that's that's a, that's another neat thing to observe when you put all of the letters, all of this section here together, is that you see the different assignments for each church, different ways that Jesus is interacting with each of the churches. So when you say there were obviously other churches that these seven are mentioned, would those other churches have read this? Did they not see their names? And what would they think they're supposed to do? So the question as to how people received this letter of Revelation is a big open-ended question. There is a church father named Irenaeus from the fourth century, and so he writes about the history of the church through the first, you know, everything before him preceding it. He's one of our main sources of church history before, you know, for the first, second, and third history. And uh, when he talks about this book, Revelation, he's also kind of like, yeah, we're not so sure about this book. So even in Christendom, in the church, the book was always a difficult book from its from the very beginning it was always this is a tough book to to receive the message to understand it uh, so then that that my point with that is just that it's, it's hard to know what what exactly the other churches did with it and how they would have perceived it right so that, that's a tough question I'm prefacing my answer with uh, it's whatever 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 we say here is a guess to the best of our ability now we know that Laodicea was another big hot spot and that um, letters like the Ephesian letter would have been read all throughout Laodicea, Ephesus. It wasn't just a letter that went to one place. So I believe actually in the letter itself, in one of those letters, either Ephesus, Philippians, Colossians, because Colossians was also right there. They have very similar beginnings. They were all, they're usually all tied together in a manuscript. So these letters went together to all these places, and they were all read everywhere in this loop of churches. So I think it's likely that this letter goes along the same paths other letters would have gone and would have been received similarly. Like this is a message that applies to all of us. And it was there were other letters. So we have first and second Corinthians. We know that there were letters in between that Paul wrote that we do not have. So technically we have I think second and fourth. We want to be more accurate. There was a letter before first Corinthians that Paul wrote and then our first Corinthians is his response to their response to his first letter. But those weren't for God's reasons. They weren't preserved for us to have. They weren't scripture. And so they would have had many other letters that the apostles wrote, not just the ones that we have. And these were singled out as ones that stood out, that, that they recognized as, whoa, this is bigger than just Paul writing his thoughts and feelings down or Peter this is the word of God to us. It, be, it stood out. So how that happened with Revelation, would have, I'm going to put it in the same category. They viewed it as something very unique and different among all the other things that were written. This one stood out, was kept and preserved, and they viewed it as applying to them as well. So that's a very long way to say, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Was it it's possible that the... That each of these churches had like branched out and they have, you know, church, other churches. If you were saying the other churches that weren't next necessarily quoted here, but they were kind of like our history here was like the Franconia community, you know. Yeah, they, they, would, they wouldn't have had their own buildings, so yeah, they would have been... a lot of churches in the Franconia area that were related to the founding of the Franconia. 
I think it's the end of the book of Romans. So in chapter 16, there's mention of the church that meets at so-and-so's house. The church that meets over here. And so you have one letter to the church in Rome, but there were many churches in Rome. And it was meant to be dispersed among all of them, kind of a thing. And then some letters, Paul will say like, hey, Bobby, you need to be quiet, right? And you need to, meet, you need to make friends with Sarah over there. You guys have been, sometimes he names people in the church and it's meant to be read in front of everybody. And everybody sees it. And then the next church also gets it and it becomes a lesson for them as well. So Philemon would be maybe an example of something like that. And I think Philippians is another one where leaders are singled out for one home church, uh, but it's read among all the churches. So that you, you can see how there's, there's precedence for the churches receiving a letter that's not directed to them and then applying it to them. Cool, 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 cool. So Laodicea, the very last one. Is there anything that comes to mind that we can use to describe that helps us remember or captures a little bit of the message of the last the last message to the last church yeah um, that's a good one that's a real good one it's kind of a scary one you think of all the things Jesus has said already I'm going to come make war with you I think that's here where he's not very happy at all he he judges some people with sickness here. Well, the teaching of Jezebel. Um, and then at the very end, he says, I'm just going to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, it's really strong language, you know, for, for the church. Really strong discipline that God basically is saying, is, I will not tolerate you not listening to me. And I will judge you. I will remove, maybe I'll remove you from the planet. I will take you up to be with me. He does that in 1 Corinthians 11 when they are messing around with communion and God says I've made some of you sick I've taken some of you home I've killed some of you because you are just I want to say useless to me right the way that you're acting you're not representing me you're not you're not the lampstand that you need that you need to be and it's on purpose so there is a judgment of God we see that in these little nuggets you know where God doesn't tolerate certain things uh, Ananias and Sapphira would be another example where God just front of everybody else strikes them dead for lying to the church leadership that doesn't happen very often as far as I know that's like the only time something like that happens but that's uh that just showed you the seriousness with which God takes the church and the people in the church so that's a pretty big one the church seems to be lukewarm they're kind of so-so and uh, they are apparently maybe materially very rich in Laodicea and God says you're just comfortable you think everything's fine and it's distorted your view of reality. It says, you guys think you're rich, but you're actually poor. You think you're clothed, but you're actually naked. Right? It's like the upside down world. You see everything upside down. It's wrong. Kind of sounds like, kind of like a church that says, we just want to love everybody and not offend anybody. Right? That could it's, be maybe one way to apply that, yeah. And so like, uh, anything goes. All are welcome. Yeah, everybody's welcome and nobody will be offended or because we will not show you that we're accountable. That could definitely be a way that maybe this happens, that um, they are so twisted that they don't see that they're actually perverted, that you're blinded. Um, if, if we want to turn there, let's, let's try to end our conversation with this letter in particular because if there is... 
anything to what we're doing, which is viewing the message together, all of them together, and, and thinking them of, of a message to the church at large, I would think there would be something to the idea that there is a beginning and an end, maybe even a middle. So I, I actually like this. You know, God starts off with, with this first love thing. It's a very neat way to start off a message to the church. I had noticed your commitment to me has waned so far. And he has these two towards the end that are not, that are good examples. And there's this middle here about teaching. Uh, and then I think there's a, this seems very much like it summarizes a lot, this, this last one. It's a, it's a, it seems like a good way to end a message t- largely towards a church that seems apathetic, doesn't seem to be obeying, maybe is abandoning their commitment, allowing false teaching, isn't paying attention, and it's almost like he's waking them up. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth if you don't wake up, right? It's, it's like a, let, let me reiterate this in very clear terms. You think it's okay, and it really reminds you of Israel, who just kind of lived, we're the people of God. We have the temple. We have Jerusalem. And God is just warning them for hundreds of years, this is not okay. This is not okay. Let me send you a judgment. Let me send you an invading empire. Let me send this. Let me send you my prophets. Over and over until God says, enough. And spits them out. Like literally, that's what the biblical imagery is. I will spit you out. The land will spit you out of this area. So I think we have a very strong reminder of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's, he's the same God of the Old Testament. It's the same, same um, values, same qualities that God has. It's just in a greater form. And so Jesus is demonstrating he's right in line with the, with the God that we've seen throughout all of time so far. I will spit you out. That's part of, his, that's part of the ending. It's not the last word he gives to the message. We're going to see he ends on a, on a more warmer note. But he does just say that, I, a warning to you. I will spit you out. If you're not, if you're not going to pay attention to me, I'm walking right among you. You don't see me with your eyes, but I am here with you. That's part of the message of these first few chapters. Um, so we're you're here there at the end of chapter three of Revelation, and so I I want to read from verse 18 on. I like I like this. He says in 18, I counsel you, I advise you, right? <laughs> Jesus is talking to you like that. You should just listen. You know, he's not just saying, oh, let me give you some unrequested advice. Uh, it's not just that. This is, this is Jesus being very kind, offering up this suggestion. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that then you may be rich, really kind of rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And let me ask you, do you think Jesus is talking about gold and clothes? Right? So this is a repeated theme in this book. There's a bunch of things that we see that are symbols. They are meant to be taken as, taken as symbols. From the very beginning of the book all the way through, that's going to be the predominant way we encounter the imagery we see is this is probably referencing something else through imagery, just like when Jesus says it here. Come buy gold from me. He's not talking about, I don't know, walking up some mountain and he has a store for you to buy gold. That's not what he's referring to. He's referring to bringing, and this, this is where we can do a little bit of imagination. It's bringing our lives to him, right? To surrendering ourselves to him and, and then receiving what he's offering us. Come exchange what you're up to, what you're living for, for what I can give you instead of what you're trying to uh, attain for you. Eternal investments, this is for present investment, right? 
Yeah, the gold refined by fire, it's this thing that we, we can't do make for ourselves here. It's this pure, eternal, lasting value. Come, come to me, I will give you something of value, and then you're going to be really rich. All right, we see Jesus teaching about things like this in the Sermon on the Mount, of accumulating for ourselves treasures in heaven, living for the Father, living for the kingdom of God and not for this world. So this is all baked in here. The white garments that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. I mean, part of this is, again, what Jesus offers us when we surrender our life to him, his righteousness, you know, our standing before God. Only he can offer us something that changes our past completely. You come to me. I'm going to be the source of that change in your life. I, I can offer you something beautiful. You guys are dressing yourselves up with these clothes for a status out on the church. You're trying to look like you're something and we all kind of do that to some degree. And Jesus is saying that that's meaningless. I, I will give you a, an identity that's, that's a much higher value than that, right? The, what, what I can offer you. So come, come to me. Um, then I love this ending to it. Um, Salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. And I, when I think of the message as a whole to the church, this is, this is all part of that salve that he's giving the church so that they may see. It's his correction. It's his word that he's offering that reveals to us what our real need is, what our real problem is, where we really are. The salve that he is offering is in the letter itself. It's like, come get the salve from me. Don't trust yourself. Don't even trust what your own eyes can see, your own self-evaluation. Come to me. I, I can cure you. I can give you what you need. So Jesus offers all these harsh words to the church, but he doesn't just leave them like, you know, like, you're pathetic. You, you don't do what you're supposed to do. He doesn't just point them and condemn them down. He, 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 br he brings out what needs to change, and he warns them. And he also says, I, I can bring the thing that will change you. I will bring you the clean clothes. I'm not here just to condemn you and leave you destitute and judged before God. If you receive my words... Right? I, I, I can give you the gold, the, the, new, the new garments. I can change out your shame for something beautiful, and I can help you see. So carry all this weight into these next couple of verses. Verse 19 says, Those whom I love I repu reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And again, I, I know this is the last letter written to Laodicea, but I, I think this represents well the message to all the churches. I, I love you. That's why I'm telling you this. I, I'm not just angry because you guys disgust me. I am angry, but I love you. I don't want you to remain this way. And if you repent and if you accept my, my correction, my teaching, you can receive the gold refined by fire, the beautiful white garments, and the forgiveness, and also what you need to, to now do the work properly. I will give you the right vision that you need to see. I will, I will give you the strength. I will give you the resolve, the perseverance, the endurance. So do you see Jesus as high priest, not only correcting, but then giving what the church needs to be the lampstand, right? I, I see that thrust in the last letter, kind of summarizing all the letter to the church. And then look at this last, not this last one, but this last part of it. So I love, I reprove, I discipline, repent, be zealous, repent. And it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with him and I'll dine with him. And this verse is just uh, very much used throughout our day and age, uh, usually isolated. We usually hear this verse all by itself. And it's usually used in application to like an altar call or something along the lines of, you know, like Jesus, he really wants to be in your heart. And he's, he's just 
He's there waiting. And if, and if you right now lift up your hand or pray this prayer, you can have him inside your heart. And, that, and that's a beautiful idea, right? But is it what Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea? And is it part of what this message is? That Jesus says, I just want to be in your heart. I would say to you, no, from everything we're seeing, it's not just that. He doesn't just want to live in the heart. He wants all of this stuff corrected to the church. And his, his knocking seems to be a metaphorical way of saying, I'm telling you what needs to change. Right? The knocking here to me seems to be all this, ju not judgment, but all this disciplining. I discipline those whom I love. And I'm here. And if you open the door and let me in, if you accept my correction, I'm not just going to come in and slap you. I will come in and dine with you. Right? If you accept what I'm telling you, if you repent at my instruction, at my words, if you receive it, I will receive you. I will come into your house and we will eat together. We will have fellowship together. Like it's, it's a promise of God that if we repent, he will forgive, he will restore, he will give us something even more than what we could have asked for in exchange. Right, man, if you just open the door, I, I will gladly come in and dine with you. What a great honor and privilege that we get for, uh, promised from God of him saying, even though you've been slack, even though you've abandoned your first love, even though you hold the false teaching, and you tolerate false teaching, and you've been practicing sexual morality and idolatry, and you have a, you're like a zombie, you're pretending to be something you're not, but if you open the door and accept my correction and reproof, we will eat together. We will have fellowship together. I will restore you. I will feed that lampstand. I will put oil in it. We'll make that light shine nice and bright. Do you see how I think, I'm not saying, do you see how I'm saying it, but do you see how that could be viewed as like a, the message to all the church. Here's a, here's a resounding summary. I'm right there knocking. I am, I'm giving you my correction. It's not, this is not just merely Jesus is knocking at the heart of every wicked person wanting to be, you know, friends with them, which, which, which is true. That is, that is a truth. But this verse is not about saving people who do not know him. This is about God speaking to his people. I'm correcting you. And the opening of the door to our hearts is us saying, I admit you're right. And I, I have been faithless. I have been doing not what I should do as a church. So that, that's an interesting way to, to start off this letter, this vision that he gives of several things. It, it was important for John to say, this is what we're going to start off with. Jesus is God himself in our midst. He will sustain us and he's going to correct us and reprove us if necessary. And here are all the different ways that he does that with us. He knows what's going on in each local church. He knows the challenges of each church. He has tasks for each church that we should be about, busy about fulfilling. Because he's not like he's a hard, nasty taskmaster, but he's also not a pushover. Right? The discipline he's, is, I think, what rings with me right now is the, you know, he knocks. We know him, <coughs> but it takes, it's when he does a deeper work in us and does that refining, um, it takes more than just faith. It takes such a deep, abiding like relationship with him to trust him in that discipline because it's not pleasant. It's very difficult at times to receive that from him. But yeah. to have Amen. the faith and know at the end of that, that deeper relationship with him that's going to be so pleasing to him. Uh, that's very true. Life, life lesson. I think the other side thing too, you know, we put so much emphasis on uh, accepting Jesus in our heart. He's our Savior. 
but the part where he's our Lord and he wants us to be obedient and submissive. You know, that, that isn't stressed enough, I think. You know, mm -hmm. like a lot of people just say, I, I did accept him, but it goes beyond that. It's bearing fruits, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, now, now we're using the metaphor. We're identifying that phrase, I knock at the door, as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. And as such, then we can expand it to broader meanings as, as what we're doing. It's not like a, hey, it's been a long time since I visited. It's, the knock is not that. The knock is this, I am here. I want to come in. Right? And then it's kind of like what you're saying. It's, it's, sometimes it's not easy the way God well, knocks at our door. it's like get down so they can't see in the windows. <laughs> you know, it's like you just don't want to deal with whatever that thing is. But... You know, praise God, he keeps banging, and he'll get in. He'll get through to us, and he's faithful to do that. Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's the banging on the door for the, the beginning of Revelation. It is the strong, like, I'm coming to speak to you, the church. I have a message for you, and you need to listen to it. You were, yeah, Bev. The message um, translates the victorious as someone who's conquered, like o overcoming, and then, and then giving the honor of sitting with with Jesus mm -hmm. at the Father's feet, like that achievement of working through and conquering the, the battle of it, the victory. Yeah, and that leads us to the Overcome again. Yeah. the second thing. We'll see if we, where, where are we here? Okay, we probably won't get to very much of this, but uh, that's the message at the end of every letter to each church is overcome, overcome, and we're left more hanging just kind of like, what exactly are we overcoming? Who are we overcoming? What, what, what is this? And so isolating this part of the book as just a standalone leaves us in the dark as to this. Because, and this is what we did a little bit last time, is the word overcome is applied to all these different scenarios. You know, if you go back to your first love, you're overcoming something. If you, if you remain faithful against Satan, you're overcoming, presumably here you're overcoming Satan. If you deal with the false teaching, you're overcoming the false teaching. If you wake up from being a zombie, you're overcoming your slothfulness, your hypocrisy, whatever that might be. And if you, um, you keep faithful, you're overcoming not being faithful. If you accept Jesus' correction about being lukewarm and open up the door and, and uh, repent and be zealous, you're, you're overcoming maybe your own sinfulness and your attitude, your behavior. There is, there's all that built into the overcome, overcome, overcome. Be victorious over all right, we talked about the meaning of the word overcome. It does predominantly mean be victorious over. And what challenges us on what this is supposed to be is that right after this letter, right after this part of the letter to the church, which is all of these seven things, we have a, an example of the lamb overcoming. And what we, what we saw last time was that this meaning of the word overcome flips upside down because the lamb overcomes by dying which we would normally take as being defeated. And so the, the big, this is one of the big gears or whatever of this, of this letter, of this book, is, is how we understand the impact of these chapters on the message to the church. The church overcomes as the lamb overcomes. That's, that's part of the idea. Even in, uh, let's see. Yeah, even in, in, the, in the letter to Laodicea, towards the end, uh, he says, um, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father. There's, a, there's an equation with the church is going to conquer the same way the lamb conquered. The lamb was victorious. And the lamb was victorious by dying. 
It says the lamb was standing slain. That's what we spent some time on two weeks ago. It's this weird, how was a dead animal standing? It doesn't make any sense. But the idea is that his surrender to the Father's will included his death, his humiliation, his shame, and that was conquering the enemy. It was being faithful to the Father. That's what we're going to see, that this word really carries the book as a whole. The church is told to overcome, and we're going to see what it's going to battle, what, the faith, what it's facing in the rest of the book. And we are called to be just like the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb, we're going to overcome that means we're going to be faithful unto death, like the, I think that's Smyrna, the, the, second, <clears throat> the second church. That's how we're going to overcome Satan, is not by stomping on him and telling him, get out of here. <laughs> I, wanted to call, I wanted to buy a dog and call him Satan so I could boss Satan around. Um, and haven't, haven't really totally convinced Jeff of that being a good idea yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm persistent. I'm knocking on that door. Uh, but the lamb overcomes. I wonder how that's going to sound on this thing, all the knocking. I feel bad for whoever has to listen to that because they don't know when it's coming. The lamb <laughs> overcomes in a really, para, is it a paradox? Well, it's a way it's not expected. He surrenders his body over, and it looks like the enemy wins by killing him. So Satan looks like he's victorious, but it's actually that defeat of Jesus that is the victory over Right? And that's the play in the rest of this letter. So the church is told to overcome, and we think that's great. And then we find out that overcoming might look like this, the surrendering of our lives. And then that's not so great. And part of what the church at large was experiencing or was about to experience in the first century was that. A big monster, the Roman Empire, was going to just bring incredible persecution to the church. So is it a coincidence that this letter has this theme in it? No, I tell you, no. So let me see how much I can, in five minutes, that we can do here that has to do with this word overcome. We did a little bit of this last week, but um, I want you to begin to see that the, the letter of Revelation as a whole is one big letter, number one, and that the vision has different parts to it. And the more we read it as a whole, you will read, read back to earlier parts of the book and go, oh, he left some of this stuff really like open-ended and not defined so that when, once we finish the book, we can go back and reread it and see things in a different light. So example would be here. The overcome, we're just given glimpses that Satan is in these different places, the church is facing something, but we're not totally sure what she's facing. She's facing Satan. She's facing Jezebel. She's facing Nicolaitans, the false teaching. She's facing its, its, the inner laziness. You're facing all these different challenges, but... It, Behind it all, what we're going to see, and the rest of the book fills this in, is that there is a dragon who is at war with the lamb and at war with the followers of the lamb. And that God has granted the dragon a limited amount of time to operate, which is the age that we are living in. And so that Jesus says to the church, be faithful, overcome, overcome, because you're at war. So let's just, we, we, let's just see if we can look at these verses really quickly so you can get a taste of that. That's kind of what I'm... Can I propose we start thinking of the rest of the book as we go from chapters 4 and forward? That's where your brain maybe should be trying to uh, synthesize some things. So chapter 12, and there's, there's a series of visions in this second half of the book. Think of the first half as the, first, as the letters, and then this is like, it's a series of different visions. And we'll talk about what to do with these visions, but I, I want to point out, just these, that the dragon is mentioned as one who's going to make war with the children 
of the woman who gave birth to Jesus. So, so it's, it's like us. It's the church. The rest of the vision of Revelation has to do with you and me. It's the situation that the church is facing. Why these letters are being written. So um, chapter 12, verse 17. And we read the whole thing actually two weeks ago. Let's just read the very end of the vision. And then the dragon became furious with the woman. Rawr, and went off to make war on the rest of her seed or her children. And who are they? They are those who keep the commandments of God and they hold, and here's the key, they hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's the followers of Jesus, those who continue to tell people about him, who remain faithful to the word. That's how we know who these people are. That's what the church is called to do as a lampstand, is to continue to proclaim the light of Jesus. So the dragon is at war with those people. That's why you have all of this, these issues creeping up. That's why Satan is mentioned so much in these letters. He is at war. He wants to snuff the light out. He wants to kill off the children of the woman. And God says, no, you can't do everything that you want to do. But in God's, we're going to see that's part of this right here. In God's governing of history, he, yep, I'm going to give, I'm going to grant him this. I'm going to want him to do this. Just like Jesus, whom God allowed the enemy to go into Judas, do his thing, and that was all used so that God could overcome. God, God flips things upside down on Satan, on the enemy. So he grants the dragon this ability, and the dragon is going to use the beast and a prostitute. right? And some of these are the themes that we see here, of like seduction by the false teaching. That's part of what we're seeing described here. But <clears throat> chapter 13, the beast... Uh, verse 7, <clears throat> the beast was allowed, and I talked to you about, we see these divine passives. It was granted to the beast. It's not the dragon that's granting the beast, it's, it's God. God grants, he's the subject of a lot of these passives in the book of Revelation. So it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe, people, language, and nation. We'll just stop there. <clears throat> The dragon is at war. And how does the dragon war? Well, it uses something called the beast. And we'll get to that when we get to that chapter. But just so you start painting the bigger picture, there is this big, nasty enemy, the dragon, and he uses his little fiends, right, to, to go after the children. And God allows it. God grants them authority to do that, to make war. That's why we're told to overcome. We are at war with the dragon and its beast. And it's not just the beast that the dragon uses. The dragon also uses something called the prostitute, which is like a seductress. Right? So it's not just threatening with life, threatening with financial punishment. It's also trying to seduce the church away from its commitment to what it's supposed to do. So chapter 17, <clears throat> I wanted you to see it <clears throat> for yourself. Chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. <gasps> One minute over. 5 and 6. <clears throat> Uh, is this vision of the great prostitute, and this is the end of the description, verse 5 and 6. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, a mysterious name, which is Babylon the Great, the mother of all prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And we'll get into this more when we get there. That's a fascinating statement. But, and I saw the woman, and she was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, the eyewitnesses. This is a description of what's been happening throughout the first century and onward, right? Those are the witnesses of Jesus. They didn't exist before Jesus came. 
So the prostitute is dealing with the witnesses of Jesus. She's filled with their blood. It's one of the ways that the dragon goes after the children of the woman. <clears throat> he, uses, he uses the beast and he uses the prostitute. And that's part of, you read back to the letter, that's why John is talking about overcoming and resisting and the seduction of a false prophetess in the beginning. is because there is a war happening for the faithfulness of God's people to himself. And Jesus is not going to let that actually win or conquer. He is going to conquer them. And we are invited to conquer the beast and the prostitute by dying just as Jesus died. That's going to be part of the main message to the people of God in this letter. Is yet the sign that there is persecution, the sign of bad things, is not a sign that things are out of control. It's not a sign that the devil has won. It's actually a sign that I'm in control. Right? That's how John is reversing. He's turning everything upside down. Could you imagine being in the first century and claiming that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Messiah, and there's a Roman ruler who claims himself to be son of God, and he's killing off all of you, and he's burning churches down, and he's killing people in, like, games and sport? It might have been like, is Jesus really God? Did that really happen? Is he really in control? What on earth is happening here? This is part of what this letter is helping the church understand. Nope. God is up there uh, breaking off the seals, and all these things that are happening to you, God's like, nope, I granted the beast authority for a while. Nope, I gave Satan 10 days to go after you. It's limited in scope. And then we're going to see the other positive visions <clears throat> in these chapters of the lamp, uh, the two witnesses that are shining lights that no one can shut them up. When the church is doing what God tells it to do, nothing can stand against the church. We're going to see that message at the same time throughout the book. But I just wanted you to see the cohesiveness and uh, we'll leave the last one, the second death, mentioned. Because that's something mentioned for the church. They won't experience a second death. And later on in the book, it's, it's those who endure and who overcome the beast. They are the ones who don't experience a second death. <sighs> Great. All right, let's get out of here. Thank you, guys. Keep reading. We're going we're gonna to focus on chapters 4 and 5 next week and uh, talk more about that. But that's read the whole thing again. And see if you come up with something a little different, a little bit newer in your in your mind about uh, you know bring a question or thought, and we'll we'll run with that. But thank you. This has been fun. The bad idea. That that's true. There are downsides to Satan being a dog. Right.